Dodger 15. You know the dinners they serve up here. No matter what it is, it tastes like farts. Are you listening, Furness? For the rest of her life, a sinner might crave burgers and fries, but gruel is the penance she gets. The funny thing is, is, if you don't get your daily portions of the bodily odors they dish up in our canteen, you will get stroppy. You will lose patience. And that is what it's like, Mr. Loser, when you don't get your next letter. Me in a strop. Is it something I said? Cause if I said stuff that don't agree with you, you could say what it is. Then I could tell you to hark off and we could be chums again. Was it my poem? I bet it was. Was it too much in your face? Cause you might talk for Greece or wherever it is you come from but none of your sort want nothing said loud and clear. When we were still being happy together and I was the bee's knees, Scarly explained about your sort. What she taught me was, anything niggling must only be hinted at, not spoken about. Even if you need to scream, it must never be screamed out loud. Scarly said, if you got a problem that needs sorting out, what your sort do is pamper it. You give it a foot massage. You give it other goods and services according to taste. What every problem needs is pretty pink wrappings and silky blue ribbons. And after you've done all that, Scarly goes, you might stick a gift card on it saying, well done you, ever so polite. Is this what's written on the gift card you ain't sent me yet? I bet it is. Your card goes, My dearest Miss Godwin, This prize in fine wrappings is for the utterly top-notch poetess you turned out to be. Only, you might like to stop sounding quite so in your face when you do your next poem for me because you will understand how my sort has more delicate sensibilities than your sort. With all wellest wishes and thanking you ever so muchly, yours, my sort. The worry is, is, it's all very well wrapping up what you need to say in its dandies and fineries, but you ain't bothered even doing that. You do nothing. I suppose because you're foreign and ignorant, you don't do polite hinting, do you? Fine. So you understand. Let me put it another way for you. I could do it for you just like I do my prayers for the Almighty. This is one I done in the chapel the other day. Oh Lord, please grant forgiveness if what I say sounds sarky and unmeant. Only. My new solicitor ain't bothered no more. This makes me feel stroppy. Each day his next letter don't come is a bigger and bigger nuisance. What's this all about, Marley? 
I hear you ask, O Lord. I will tell you, sire. What it is, is, is this. My new solicitor is hinting with longer and longer silences that he don't care for the poem I wrote called You Should Know Me Better. Lordness above, what my new solicitor is trying to say is I'm too much in his face, only he's foreign, so he don't know how to do polite hinting. O oh, mighty one, you and I both know my gospel according to me. We know how rotten I feel about what's happened that's tragic. I get the miseries even when I even think of my sister no longer with us. Ripped away from me, dear Lord, just as we was about to live happily ever after. Is that not my gospel served up cold, O Father who art? And, O gracious maker of all things, we know too well how I obeyed, telling my new solicitor all the shenanigans you told me to tell him. We know how, most lately, I told him the real name of the weasel, so he can take her to court over how she pushed my sister into queerdom to get her greedy hands on cash loans and never pay them back. You might say, oh most profound one, what is his problem? Yes. You might wonder, why is this new solicitor of yours so cruel and unkind? Exactly. But, oh bounteous one, this Oto utter loser who ain't even from round these parts, was the very legal eagle you yourself said was God's gift. Is it my fault then, dearest Lord, if my saviour solicitor is hinting he can fob me off with a few letters or two and never faces to faces on a legal visit, like it must be if things is ever going to get meaningful between us? No doubt. I should have kept my poem to myself and not showed it off to him. I am truly humbled. Hand on Bible, I will never show off to no saviour of mine, not one other poem I ever wrote, so long as I live and breathe. There. All I pray now is, my knight in armour tells me what he is thinking. And not just by post, O oh greatness at the pearl gates. Can you not stick him on a bus? Cause I don't dare speak about nothing too meaningful. Not in these poxy letters. We all know, do we not, how Frank Furness and his uniform surlies is reading them right this second, word for word. As for you, Franklin Stein, once you've finished prying into my prayers to the bounteous ruler, why don't you stick my property back in its envelope and pop it in the post to my new solicitor? There's a good officer, because I ain't saying nothing out loud that might give you your pathetic hard-ons. Speaking of which, did I tell you how much I fancied Ralph Godwin? Even if he was my cousin, Ralpho had proper hard-ons. Maybe his dad was the nest of hornets longing to give me a good riddance, but Ralpho could ride in the races. I don't mind saying he was a proper Greek, and the one foreign bloke you could have a quickie with and keep fond memories after. His neck was thick like his beard, 
His eyelashes was the darkest you ever seen. You could spot his sly winks and smarmy smiles when they came flying overhead. They was like missiles. Shall I tell you what happened? Because it weren't just me who took a rise and shine to our lusty cousin. You will recall how Scarley's dressed us both like something off the cover of the glossies. You will recall how she made me greet the pit of vipers that was the rest of our side of the family. I was not my best that day, you will imagine. I had to open the front door to them. It was freezing. None of them wanted to come in. They thought I was Scarley, but I wasn't. They were speaking to me like they knew everything about me, only they didn't. This made me have fits. I laughed in their faces. Then Scarley strolls in the front room, purring like kittens, cause it's all about her at the center of things. That's when there's a deathly silence you ain't seen before nor since. Only then, Scarley goes busying in the kitchen and leaves me to it with them lot, standing round like lemons. Ralph Fonso is the only one talking. I'm trying not to giggle. Then he disappears off for a piss. So I think to myself, I know. I'll nip to the kitchen for a top-up from the fridge freezer. That's when I seen Scarley, ready to have relations. She's got her arms raised for him so he can slip our new dress over her head. I seen she's stalkers underneath. Apart from her tights with runs in them, there weren't nothing between her and her Greek goer. No bras, not even undies, which I will say was the only technical difference between us, cause I had my bra on, and I had my undies on, like a good girl. I says to them, polite as you like, aye aye, happy families, only I keep heading for the fridge freezer, cause there's no way I was leaving the kitchen without a good swig of chilled Russian first. Scarley's put her smile back on. It's that smile what always means life is so hilarious, ain't it? It's the smile what says, I couldn't give a huck anyways. She never said that, but her smile said it. She wriggles back into her frock then, except Ralpho looks like he's still ready for business. Even though Scarley's half-decent again, his hands still want to grab at something. Do you know what? Even then, as I slugged my vodka from the cooler, even then, as close as Ralph's hands was to Scarley's boobs, the way his eyelashes was fluttering, I could see how he fancied both of us the same. Back in the front room, the deathly silence was only getting deathlier. There wasn't no time to think. I finished glugging my Russian. I wiped my mouth with the back of my hand. When I was done wiping, I did my cheeky grin. Scarley and Ralpho was still glued to the spot where they was only just about to be bang at it. I didn't say nothing. But my grin was saying, I bags him next.
The month of June had brought with it more activity in the office. There was a spike in arrests and prosecutions. I was called to the police stations more frequently. The knock-on effect was an increased caseload in the courts. This meant I was busy with dozens of new clients. Despite being so thinly spread, and despite the fact that Marnie's letters were becoming more and more shrill, I'd been able to make some progress. Louise Gross and I had had some interesting telephone conversations. In the coming weeks, I would continue accumulating as much information as I could, enabling me to develop an understanding of Charlotte's life. My contact with Louise would end in that visit to her home in London at the beginning of July, which of course was followed by our own meeting at Kew Gardens. I'd accepted Marley's case because I couldn't reconcile the use of a stone as a weapon in what was supposed to have been a premeditated murder motivated by financial gain. It was specifically for this reason that I'd changed my approach and why I'd offered Marley legal aid. But there was more to it. Everything seemed to be in doubt. My outlook was changing so rapidly and problematically it felt like the world was slipping from under my feet. Whatever I did, it was subject to a transformation I couldn't even comprehend, let alone admit to. It didn't help that the politics of the time was also on its head. The Brexit vote had taken place while I was still in hospital, still in a coma. After I woke up, the country seemed to me to be disappearing down a funnel of fear and aggression. Because of my Austrian citizenship, my status as a solicitor and resident of the United Kingdom felt at best undermined, at worst under threat. I'd returned to my duties at work and tried my best to settle back in. It appeared to others that I was making a full recovery, but this was only how it looked on the surface. As far as Marley's case went, the moment I began to formulate even the most opaque reservations about her conviction, the floodgates would open. I had no choice but to follow a cascade of inquiries which, through Louise, is how I came to trace Charlotte's school friend, Hugo Timlin. You'll recall that he worked as a hydrologist for the Environmental Agency. It was when he told me about the stone Charlotte found in the River Alwyn that I was able to make a possible connection with the murder weapon. I ended up emailing Hugo two photographs of the stone. Both had been taken by the police. In the first photograph, it was fitted together so you couldn't see the split. The second was of the two parts of the stone lying face open with what appeared to be the spirals of a fossil embedded in the flat sections. The fossil inside was as mesmeric as it was unexpected its fine lines in light browns and mauves spiraled delicately into the smooth black surfaces. Hugo wrote back saying it seemed likely that Charlotte's keepsake was the stone she'd found in the river. Like me, he was intrigued by the fact that it had come apart. It had certainly been intact when he'd handled it all those years ago. He asked if it might have come apart while Charlotte had been in possession of it, which opened the possibility that she might have known all along what was hidden inside it, but had chosen to display the stone as a single object. Hugo said the fossil was an ammonite, 
I understood from him that this was an ancient predator, belonging to the family of cephalopods. I don't know if this means anything to you. It thrived in the oceans a hundred million years ago. It's common enough, Hugo told me, to come across excellent examples, large and small, in all kinds of sedimentary formations. I tried to imagine the two parts of the stone displayed in such a way that the fossil inside had been kept a secret. Louise recalled seeing the stone many times, both in London and Cambridge. As far as she could remember, it was only ever displayed as one piece. She and Charlotte never spoke about it. You were as fascinated by the stone as me. But I suppose the evidence that what had been displayed on Charlotte's bookshelf was the same object she'd found as a teenager was limited to Hugo's recollections. It seemed to me I was wasting my time thinking about all this. It was part of the problem I was encountering on a personal level. We can call it brain damage if you like. Since returning to work, I'd noticed that I was less able to prioritize or do anything in sequence. Instead, I could just as easily drift. I would find myself wandering down some rabbit hole or other. I would stare at nothing. And yet, we might say that the provenance of the jet stone and its use as the murder weapon was my path into Marley's case. More than once in her letters, Marley had invited me to regard Louise as a suspect in Charlotte's murder. I found her reasoning flimsy and tried to ignore it. I did eventually question Louise about the alleged debt. She confirmed that she'd borrowed four and a half thousand pounds from Charlotte. Of this, three thousand eight hundred pounds was still owed to Charlotte's estate. She was clearly embarrassed by my questions. She told me she'd already made contact with Jack Godwin and had begun to pay the money back. The claim that Louise had murdered Charlotte rather than repay this debt was as incomprehensible as the Crown's assertion that Marley had murdered Charlotte in order to get her hands on her sister's fortune. These may have been sound enough reasons to commit a financially motivated crime, but it was the fury behind the commission of the crime that troubled me. It was an act that had none of the hallmarks of a premeditated murder. It wasn't so much a calculation that had killed Charlotte. It was a rage, I thought. The killer couldn't even have been sure that Charlotte would die. I myself am living proof that the brutal use of a blunt object to ensure the victim doesn't survive is hardly a reliable method. And it was the stone giving me these thoughts. Do you see? I kept returning to it. I found myself thinking about what it would be like to commit a murder with a stone only slightly larger than a fist. It can't have been thought through. On picking it up with the intention of using it as a weapon and finding that it came apart, I imagined any killer motivated by spontaneous rage would have been taken by surprise. In the photographs, the edges of the two sections looked fairly sharp. It was easy enough to imagine the killer's hands being injured. There wouldn't have been any of the heft of the intact object that the killer would have anticipated on grabbing the stone. 
Just to deliver a fatal blow, the killer would have been forced to hold the two parts together in both hands. It just didn't seem practicable. I had no intention of visiting Marley in prison. That was what her letters wanted, or ordered. I was uncomfortably aware that the speculative nature of her case was an indication that it was not one the legal aid agency would necessarily wish to finance, let alone grant a travel allowance for. That's how the system limited its own functioning, you see, by squeezing the funding for every activity. There may have been plenty to discuss, but it was only ever based on the documentation that came out of the trial. What Marley's case needed, if it needed anything, was new evidence. It needed something fresh and vital that had not been contemplated by her jury. Until you came along, my plan was to maintain our correspondence while I followed through with a few more inquiries. In the event that my file was ever audited, I also wrote a detailed note to justify why I considered this work to be worthy of public funding. In my note, I recalled that on the day of her sister's death, Marley had gone to the cemetery nearby where their parents were buried. She said that when she returned to Charlotte's house, it was raining. When the police arrested her, Marley's hair and clothes had been wet. Her account from the beginning was that when she arrived back at the property, the door was open. When she went in, Charlotte was already dead. She was on the living room floor. The timing of the murder was everything. Daphne Popham's evidence was central to the Crown's case, I wrote. She was the witness who defined the timing of the murder. But it seemed to me that her evidence was not as strong as the Crown liked to make out. During the course of the trial, what Mrs. Popham was saying may not have been as effectively challenged as it should have been. If the murder occurred shortly before Mrs. Popham's call to the emergency services, Marley's return to the house might have meant that the murderer would have been forced to leave in a hurry, with no time to pick up the two sections of the stone from the floor. The transcript of Mrs. Popham's telephone call indicated that she was elderly. I noted she was hard of hearing. She could hear loud voices, she said, but they must have been muffled. She'd been too afraid to leave her home to find out who was shouting or why. She may have misinterpreted the cries of Marley's desperation on discovering Charlotte as the cries of two people shouting at each other. On top of that, it could well have been the case that Mrs. Popham heard shouts between Charlotte and someone other than Marley. I began to list the suspects who might have had cause to engage so angrily with Charlotte that even Mrs. Popham would have been able to hear their shouts. As I wrote my note, I thought of making contact with Mrs. Popham through the Crown Prosecution Service. I was wary of doing this, as I explained to you. In her commentaries, Marley had not been shy about pointing the finger of blame. Without more, her claims about Louise seemed easily refutable, at least on the basis that the violence was over an unpaid debt. There was the bewildering affair with Julius Haft, who was supposed to be connected with the Secret Services. I was unable to process or gauge this effectively. 
No doubt, I needed to find out more about the original stalking episode that Molly described. In the end, though, I found myself agreeing with Louise. It was as if Charlotte had become so unwell mentally that her imagination was simply getting the better of her. Molly hinted strongly that she suspected Jack Godwin of some kind of mischief. She referred to him as sinister. It's true that he and his wife would have had the best financial motive. Charlotte's fortune did in fact pass to them as the only next of kin. Yet this was another scenario involving murder for financial gain. It was the one premise I couldn't accept. If I was convinced of anything, it was that the Crown's argument for motive was all wrong. If the motive had been rage, however, that was something else. In that case, there was the prospect that any number of people close to Charlotte might now be implicated differently. Jack and his wife, Ralph Godwin, Emilia Godwin, even Louise for that matter, certainly Julius Haft, they will all have had their reasons to be outraged by Charlotte and to erupt without knowing how badly it would end. In her fifteenth letter, Marley revealed that her cousin Ralph had been sexually active with Charlotte. She disclosed that she'd been attracted to Ralph herself. All of this added another dimension to the case, bringing it even closer to the dangerous triggers of a passion. I've already said how I tried to make contact with the Godwin family informally, and how my efforts were snubbed by Jack. This was a disappointment, and you wondered why I didn't press the issue. It just wouldn't have been right. Jack and his wife had been prosecution witnesses. Although maybe there's no ownership in a witness, I was compelled to consider the tedious business of having to arrange to speak with them, as well as Mrs. Popham, through the Crown Prosecution Service. My experience was that these observed and stilted interviews rarely yielded results. There would always be a police detective hovering. Even so, I carefully noted in Marley's new file my interest in the prospect of having to do this. It was only when I'd finished writing my long note that I realized thinking about Marley's case felt like being in a labyrinth. Maybe that's the damaged brain talking. Maybe this labyrinth is the place I've been looking out from ever since waking up. It's all I seem to see. By the time you became involved, my confusion would be wrenched into focus. It started just a few days later when Ralph got in touch out of the blue. Once his sister followed suit, Marley's case started to be driven by its own momentum. In the meantime, I was forced with the prospect of having to write another letter to her and braced myself in anticipation of her response. 